Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It is Tuesday, which means it is Draft Deep Dives Day. So I am here, as always, with my hashtag basketball and no ceilings colleague, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing this fine Tuesday afternoon? Nick, I'm fantastic. The Timberwolves are back to 500, and Houston is finally not 90 degrees and 100% humidity. So, you know, just just celebrating the little things in life right now. <laughs> oh, how nice it would be to be back. <laughs> Um, yeah, not exactly as good a week for the Kings as it was for the Minnesota Timberwolves, but hey, that's how it is often. You know, the, the two struggle bus teams in the NBA, at least one of them is finally starting to get it together-ish. The, the, there's not a ton to love, but but you find solace in the little things and in, in the little win streaks here and there. So it, it, it's fun. To, anyway. Exactly. <laughs> so today we are going to go over our big board 2.0s so recently on no ceilings if you haven't seen it yet we released our second version of the big board for the 2022 nba draft and we had a few disagreements not really major disagreements i want to state that up top in case these arguments tend to get a little too far but Certainly, we both agree that most of the prospects we're going to talk about today are prospects that we're fans of, but I did want to start out with two of the biggest differences at the top of both of our boards, and the one I want to start with is Jabari Smith Jr. So you had Jabari at number two overall in your most recent big board, and I had him at number four. So it's not like we're wildly different on him as a prospect. We both see him as a pretty clear top five player in this draft, but I am a bit worried about Jabari Smith in comparison to the two other big men who have been talked about at the top of this draft basically since last year at this point in Paulo Bencaro and Chet Holmgren. So I have him below those two and someone else who we will be talking about a little bit later on in the podcast. But I wanted to start with your thoughts on Jabari and why you now have him at number two over Apollo and over everyone in this draft besides Chet Holmgren. It's tough because I'm I'm not completely infatuated with, you know, the very top of this draft. Like I have been in the last, you know, handful of seasons where we've had those clear elite franchise cornerstone builders. I don't think we really have that in this draft. With that said, I still have Chet kind of alone at number one in his own tier. And I, I think there's a healthy amount of space between Jabari, Paolo, and another player that we'll talk about in a little bit. But what currently sets Jabari just slightly apart from Paolo for me is the defense, really. And at that size, that defensive versatility, I think it's just such a special combination. And then when you combine that with how prolific his outside shooting has been, I think that's the foundation for a really, really talented starter on, you know, uh, on a championship competitor in the long run. I think Paolo, you know, may, may have an absolute higher ceiling because of the ball skills, the scoring versatility, uh, and his ball handling is leagues better than Jabari Smith. Um, so, like from that standpoint, if you're looking to build a, your team around kind of a, a, a point forward um, or a point big man, then I think Paolo is the route to go. But I think Jabari elevates the whole team a little more. I think he's easier to fit into pretty much any rotation in the league right now. And just that 
off-ball shooting combined with the defensive versatility when you can pull someone of his size out and have him guard at a really high level on the perimeter I think that's such a special tool and something that we don't get a whole lot with these young prospects so for me and again I have him at four so it's not like I don't believe in him as a prospect but the defense is a huge part of it for me and his ability to be a potential stretch big as well as a defensive fulcrum for a team is really enticing. And you mentioned the fact that he's an easier fit, and I definitely agree with that. You know, Paulo is definitely someone who's going to monopolize a bit more of the offense, I'm willing to bet, especially early on in his NBA career when he presumably goes to a team that's not all that good and needs to use him for a lot of possessions. The reason that I have Jabari at four is that there are two sort of major concerns that I have with him, and both of them are on the offensive end. I have nothing but good things to say about his defense. I think that he has the potential to be a really special player on that end of the floor, but there are two things that worry me about his offense. So his three-point shooting is incredible. That will be a huge boon for any team as soon as he goes to the NBA. His two-point percentage is currently worse than his three-point percentage. He's shooting 45% from deep, 45.3%, and 44.8% from the floor. And that's really what worries me about him more than anything else is his ability to finish around the basket because, you know, he's going to get a lot of off-ball opportunities to be a shooter and space the floor in that particular way. But unlike Paulo, you can't rely on him as much to create his own shot, certainly create his own shot inside the three-point line. And the other thing that worries me is, as you mentioned, his handle is just leagues behind where Paulo's is. And honestly, I think pretty far behind where Chet's handle is at this point as well. And so even though he has this incredible defensive upside, he's one of the best shooting 6'10 prospects we've seen in a while. And he's a versatile shooter. He's not just someone who's only going to, you know, shoot trail freeze in transition or when he's left absolutely wide open. He's got a more versatile shot than that, but because of his handle and his issues scoring around the rim, that's what really concerns me about, you know, how much more he can be on the offensive end in the NBA, especially his first couple of years in the league. But, you know, the shooting is definitely there and that's a huge part of his offensive game. And that's the huge reason why I have him at four, but I am concerned about his finishing and about his handle. And I think those put him below Paulo for me. Yeah. And, and that's totally fair. And I, I think that's where, you know, it, it really comes down to like the, or at the top of the draft with, some of these guys, it really comes down to the nitpicking and how how these you know bad teams really want to build going forward. Where if you know, I, I keep seeing a lot of oh, just imagine Cade and Paolo together. I think that could be fun, but I also want the ball in Cade's hands as much as possible, and I think Jabari boosts that and then combine their the defensive IQ of both those guys. I think that's the foundation of a really good defense for you know going into the future. Um, you know, if, if I'm a team that needs that kind of more versatile scoring and scoring off the dribble and someone who has shown flashes of really creative playmaking, then I tend to lean Paulo because he has that upside and he's shown pretty much on every level that he's willing to kind of try and score in unorthodox, unorthodox ways that will may, may look a little clunky right now, but in the long run help you know, help him develop and expand his game overall. So I, 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 I don't push back really too much on the idea of ha- having Paolo at two, um, even at one. I, I still lean Chet pretty heavily at one, but I, I think the Paolo 
Jabari um, kind of debate for number two, I, you know, I, I can go either way. And depending on who I watched more recently, you know, that, that may be enough to swing it because when, when these guys are clicking on both ends of the floor, it's so much fun to watch your point about Jabari's limitations, I think are really important though, to, you know, factor in, because if you are bringing him in, if you see a shooting stroke and you're like, awesome point forward guy's going to go, go ISO six ten forward who can get his own shot. It's not going to happen. He can't do it. He has no handle right now. At best, he can take like a, a one dribble or like escape dribble, pull up um, attacking a closeout or a turnaround po- fade in the post, but he's not breaking di- guys down. He's even clumsy in the open court. So I think that stuff is really concerning, but you know, it, it comes down to, for me, at least it comes down to kind of team fit and what each player does to really elevate um, that team's kind of overall performance. You mentioned team fit, and I think that's going to be key here. So there are two teams I want to use as an example and one that you already mentioned. So if the Detroit Pistons get the number two overall pick, we're assuming for the sake of this exercise, since we both have Chet at number one, that Chet goes number one. So if Detroit gets the number two overall pick, I think that Jabari Smith makes a lot more sense as a compliment to Cade Cunningham than Paulo does, as you mentioned. If the Orlando Magic, however, get the number two overall pick, I think it would make a lot more sense for them to go with Paulo as someone who can be their primary guy. And granted, that's, you know, denying Jalen Suggs and our colleague Nathan Grubel's favorite Cole Anthony a bit. But I think ultimately that there will be a lot more opportunities where it makes sense for Paulo to have the ball in his hands if he ends up going to, say, Orlando than if he ends up going to Detroit. So, you know, I think that's really kind of going to be a huge part of where all of this factors in is just what kind of team they would be going to. And I think a team that needs a player who can monopolize the ball a little bit more would be better served by taking Paulo. And for Detroit, even though I'm higher on Paulo, I might say that, you know, I think Jabari actually makes a bit more sense in that spot. And for, for me personally, the the Detroit fit, why I lean Jabari is because I want the ball in Kate's hands as much as possible. And as the season is progressing, we're seeing him do more and more and how he really can just control the entire flow of a game. And when you take the ball out of his hands, yes, he's a good shooter, but his overall positive impact is greatly nullified when you take the ball out of his hands. I think Orlando is still in that phase where they can afford to just take home run swing after home run swing. And I think Paolo is that ultimate home run swing, especially between these two, where if he does hit that absolute upside and peak of what he can be as a player, I I think that's so much higher than what Jabari's actual, you know, full on absolute peak is. All right, let's get into the discussion that may end our podcast partnership. So now it's time to talk about who we think is the best guard in this draft. And Johnny Davis, next topic. Yeah, okay. So you have been <laughs> proselytizing for Johnny Davis, which is exactly why we're having this discussion. You said that you would, you know, preach more for Johnny Davis than you did for Trey Mann last year, which I'm not sure is humanly possible. <laughs> but if anyone can do that, you certainly can. So I still believe that Jaden Ivey is the best guard in this draft. And to be entirely clear, 
I am still very high on Johnny Davis. I had him eighth on our big board 2.0 last week, and that already feels low. So, <laughs> you know, there you go with that. But I still think that Jaden Ivey is the guard prospect, top guard prospect in this class. And I haven't seen him prove otherwise, even though Johnny Davis did ultimately get the better of him in their head-to-head matchup. Now, I want to start, first of all, by saying I don't think that's entirely fair because in that game, Johnny Davis did not have a great first half until Jaden Ivey left the floor with foul trouble. And when the Boilermakers tried to have Zach Hunter and Isaiah Thompson and Ethan Morton guard Johnny Davis instead of Jaden Ivey, that's when Johnny Davis really started to heat up and go off. So... I don't think it's really fair to ding Jaden Ivey for that particular game. But that being said, that was a spectacular performance by Johnny Davis and just another bullet in the chamber for him as a top prospect in this draft. But I've done enough talking about Johnny Davis. I should let you talk about Johnny Davis. So you have him ahead of Jaden Ivey at this point. You had him at number four on the big board. So go ahead, preach the gospel of Johnny Davis to the world. Um, so I, I think it is kind of fair to ding Ivy because they try oh, okay. even even wow. even, in, even in the second half they tried to use Ivy as the primary defender on Johnny Davis and he kept torching him and he and they had to move Ivy off of him because Ivy couldn't stay with him. I thought Ivy's defensive effort and awareness in that game was really concerning. Um, Johnny Davis beat him to every 50, 50 ball. There was, he beat him on back cuts. He outworked him. Um, and just like the overall work rate that Johnny Davis shows pretty much every game on both ends of the floor, I think is really intriguing. And given his, how absurd of a usage rate he's of, of a jump in usage, he's taken on the offensive end. I would expect his defense to tail off, but he's still taking on the primary scoring option as his defensive assignment. I, I still love Jaden Ivey for you and everyone else who still has Ivy as the top guard. I, I I don't fault that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just lean Ivy because or lean Davis because of you say the, you lean Ivy. No, we're, we're, we're <laughs> I, I, I lean Davis because of the the two way upside and impact that he provides. I'm also a little concerned with Ivy's interior finishing everything he finishes with is with his right hand. Um, it doesn't look like he can go left at all. Uh, whenever we talk about one hand dominance, it all, we always talk about lefties um, because it just looks weird. And well, also because they can get away with it more. And, but we never talk about it with righties. And every time Ivy attacks the rim, it's always to his right hand. Now it's almost impossible to stop him from getting to that right hand. But, you know, how, how, how much does that change? in the NBA, you know, I, I think it's I, from what Davis has shown compared to Ivy. I think Davis has shown more craft finishing around the rim. I think he's shown more craft finishing in the mid range. And I think his defensive effort and impact has been pretty significantly more positive than Ivy's on the season. So I definitely agree that Davis has a much more versatile offensive game. He certainly is a lot harder to shut down on that end than Ivy, you know, just forcing him away from that right hand. Not really something you can do as much with Davis, also just because he's got such an exceptional mid-range pull-up game. You know, if you give him an inch of space, he's taking that inch of space. I don't know. I think I saw that game as a 
less negative defensive game for Ivy than you did. I think a lot of the reason they moved him off Davis is more because he was in foul trouble than because he was getting torched. And certainly his teammates got torched a lot worse yeah, than... Yes, yes. Than, I, everyone got torched by Johnny Davis that game. So it's, it's not entirely on Ivy. No, it is not. The defense is interesting because Davis has certainly been better on the defensive end this season. I don't think either of us would disagree with that, but... Part of the reason that I still have Ivy ahead at this point is that his athletic tools are just special. I mean, it's not that Johnny Davis is a bad athlete, but he's not the absolute top tier of top tier athletes like Jaden Ivy is. And the other thing that I think separates them, so they're both top tier offensively, but Johnny Davis is in the 59th percentile on Synergy if you look at possessions plus assists. Jaden Ivey is in the 87th percentile if you look at possessions plus assists. I think ultimately Jaden Ivey is someone who I have much more belief in as someone who could be a primary kind of point guard type. I think that Johnny Davis, when he has the ball in his hands, it's not like he is a black hole or someone who doesn't make passes. He does make pretty good reads, but I don't think he's quite at the level of Jaden Ivey as a playmaker. And The other thing I think is that because of Ivy's just top, top tier athleticism, I think that his 95th percentile outcomes are better than Johnny Davis's. I think if he hits his absolute, absolute peak, then he will end up being a better player. But, you know, you mentioned with Jabari Smith that it's a bit of nitpicking and, you know, it is nitpicking when we're talking about these are, I think certainly based on our most recent big board, our two top guards in this draft. And really it's just a matter of which skill set you prefer from them. And I think that odds are good that Johnny Davis will be better in his first two years in the league. And I think the question is what they become down the road. And I think that part of the reason I'm higher on Ivy is just because I think that his ultimate ceiling is a lot higher as well. So in terms of passing, I I think Davis's assist numbers really do a disservice to how good of a passer he is um because and when you look at the badgers as a team if you take out johnny davis's numbers they're shooting 28 percent from three which is you know kate cunningham at oklahoma state-esque um bad so you know when when, i i think i think davis is actually really so ivy is a better playmaker i kind of distinguish the difference between the two last episode when we talked where i see playmaking more as creating or passing your teammates open and giving them extra chances and passing more as accuracy and vision and overall ball movement i think davis is the better passer but ivy is certainly the better playmaker because of how he leverages his athleticism to create advantages and put pressure on the rim which forces the defense to collapse and he's proven that he's really adept at hitting those kickout passes and when when you're kicking out to Stefanovic instead of Tyler Wall that's a pretty big difference in shooting quality so I'm not trying to bring down Ivy's playmaking because I, I think it is really special and especially in transition too which I highlighted a couple weeks ago on no ceilings he has that ability to really his gravity on his drives creates a lot of opportunities for his teammates on the perimeter and if he's surrounded by a couple good shooters they're gonna feast because he will find them and he has the ability to hit those kick out passes i i think davis he he doesn't have quite that playmaking level but when he's posting up guys or driving he's really comfortable with finding that skip pass or making the extra pass to a guy who then makes 
the assist pass. So I, I, I think Davis helps the overall offensive flow a little bit more, but Ivy does a better job of setting his guys up for easier scores. Yeah, I think Davis makes better decisions, but Ivy takes the kinds of risks that I think are yes. really promising signs for their future passing potential. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that lends more to, you know, a, a higher potential or likelihood that Ivy could be that primary ball handler or that primary initiator, whereas I, I see Davis almost purely as like that combo shooting guard um, where... I, you know, he, he can initiate some stuff. He can bring the ball up after a miss and transition or whatever. But overall, I'm not sure that I want him really running the offense, but instead, you know, running off screens, cutting, posting up and initiating as that secondary guy. So let's move on now to talking about Jalen Duran, who we talked about recently on a No Ceilings podcast. So we won't spend too much time here, but I still have him at fifth overall as a version 2.0 of the big board. And you have him down at 11. So again, it's not like one of us has him top five and the other has him out of the lottery, but there is a bit of a difference there. So I am sort of curious to just revisit that for a little bit and sort of talk about why you have Duran falling to the back half of the lottery. I'm just, I've been really underwhelmed by what he can do outside of five feet, um, kind of on both ends of the floor, really. I, I was pretty optimistic about his defensive versatility and when he's pulled out into isolation or switches on the pick and roll, um, I, I, his feet seem really slow and he's, especially his hip mobility. He's really slow when his, to flip his hips, when that uh, high foot gets attacked. Um, now he has the size and athleticism to recover and, you know, deter a lot of guys um, in college. I think that's going to be more of an issue in the NBA. Um, I still don't trust the shot really. I I think it's kind of rough. The passing has started to improve, which I think is really encouraging. Early on, he really struggled with double teams and he was slow in making decisions out of that with passing and finding guys or or just, you know, making a decision and just got hung up too much on the double that we've seen some stretches recently of that slowly improving. So that's encouraging. Um, It's just tough for me because I, I think that Memphis context is potentially the worst that he could be in because I I know we sound like a broken record on this, but I think if he had an actual point guard, he would look so much better. Um, but he doesn't. And I have to just kind of keep reminding myself of that. And then that he's, he should be a senior in high school right now. And he has these otherworldly athletic tools. So I, I want to be higher on him. I just need to see kind of continued progression and continued improvement from a processing speed from, you know, creation out of the short roll, just little things like that, that show that he is actively improving um, for me to move him up. So you mentioned how the passing has looked better over the course of the season. And really that's the main reason why I haven't dropped him is because that has been encouraging. And, you know, when you're just a giant human being who's very athletic and can block shots around the rim, you know, we've talked quite frequently on this podcast about how there's a pretty high replacement level for that. But I think his passing growth in particular has been really encouraging for me, just in the sense that he's not just, I mean, he is going to be mostly a rim running big, especially early on in his NBA career, but his development as a passer gives me more hope for where he's going to end up further down the line. You know, it's not just that he doesn't understand how to pass out of double teams or how to 
work within the flow of an offense. It's just that he's trying to work within the flow of an offense that has absolutely no flow and it's not yeah. all that not easy to do, but I still very much buy into his defensive upside. His athleticism is very easy to see. And if he continues to improve as a passer, then I think that will really solidify his stock sort of in the top portion of the lottery. But I do definitely understand why he's falling on a lot of boards. And certainly he's the kind of player that for me, I mean, not as much as inefficient shooting guard types, but the kind of player for me that I tend to underrate in these drafts. And I think part of the reason that I'm still so high on Duran is I just think his athleticism is so special. And if he can complement that with anything else on the offensive end, I'm going to continue to buy in and his passing improvement makes it easy for me to continue to buy in. Yeah. I, I think that right there is re- really kind of sums up where I'm at, where these uber athletic and physical physically gifted centers, I just need to see them prove that they can do something when they can't just out muscle guys. And I haven't seen enough of that on a consistent enough basis from Duran to push him into that kind of front half of the lottery, because I, I, I just struggle to buy in on spending that much draft capital on a center who's just kind of an athletic freak and i mean that is the biggest compliment i can um come workout time and combine time i fully expect duran to skyrocket again because once he gets in an empty gym and starts testing in front of these front offices i'm sure the reports of his workouts are going to be absolutely glowing because of how athletically gifted he is and you know when when i talk about showing just a little bit more than just your physical gifts you know the i think the passing is the best way for him to do that i think the shot has a long way to go i don't think he has great touch but the flashes of that passing vision i think would help really help the offense kind of expand and allow him to do different things within the offense so if if he can continue to do that i i'd more than happy to to move him up and i really want to i just need to see it from him So now we're going to move on to two wing players who we both have in the teens, but in terms of draft stock, it definitely seems like they're going in very different directions. One definitely boosting his draft stock and the other not so much, but we both still believe in Oshai Agbaji and Caleb Houston enough to have them in the teens for this draft. So Let's start with Agbaji, who's someone we have been talking on this podcast on and off about basically since we started doing draft stuff on this podcast. And he's finally done it. He's finally putting together a consistent season where he's just a star player for the Kansas Jayhawks and shooting 47% from three-point range and still at 6'6 with great athleticism and excellent defensive instincts. He's clearly someone who fits right into the mold of a 3 and D player and Really, all he's needed to do for the last few years is just be more consistent. And he's finally been that this season. And so I had him at 12 on the first big board. And a few guys climbed ahead of him for me. So I ended up dropping him down to 17. But still someone who I think should be, if not a lottery pick, then certainly in the middle of the first round. And you actually bumped Ibaji up to 13 on your most recent big board. So why don't we go back to the old well and talk about Ochai Ibaji some more? Uh, just, just our, our favorite from day one. Um, 
Yeah, just thinking back on like when he first debuted as a freshman to where he is now, the transformation he's taken as a player has been pretty incredible because as a freshman, he was just this pure hustle athletic freak who wasn't really that skilled, couldn't really shoot. And now he's one of the best shooters in, in the country. He's, you know, operating the pick and roll. He's one of the primary initiators on Kansas. That development for him, I think, has been really undersold uh you know by the draft community he's just a really good player and I, I think what he's shown during his time at Kansas is that he can pretty much play whatever role you want him to and that he whatever you need from him he will f- slide in and fit in last year they didn't really have a point guard or anyone to run their offense so he slid into that role it was bumpy there were a lot of you know it wasn't a smooth process and there are a lot of issues with it, but he learned from it. He got better and continued to grow and develop. And now we're seeing him as a much better on ball shooter and scorer and passer this year. And those physical gifts and that defensive awareness and impact are all still there. So I, I don't think he has a ton of upside, but as a six man, as a connecting piece in a starting rotation, I, I, I think he's a, just a really good two way player that, will provide a lot of value a lot of value to a team however they want to use him yeah maybe he doesn't have that much upside left but first of all as he is right now he would be a helpful player in basically every rotation in the nba and you know second of all i mean maybe he doesn't have that much upside left but i mean even though we were high on him, I don't think either of us thought he would be this kind of player by the time he got to this age right so you know, maybe there is still more for him to tap that we just haven't seen yet. And I certainly don't want to count that out given how he's developed over the course of his college career. And and I think the biggest thing is him proving for multiple years that he's this just knockdown shooter. And that that is something that I never expected from him, or at least this quickly from him. Um, and him just proving that alone means that he can play in pretty much any NBA rotation because he what he he can just be an off-ball shooter. He can, you know, attack closeouts and get to the rim and then create for others from there. So he's just continued to prove that whatever a team needs from him, he can fill in and produce at a really high level. So just the the overall growth and versatility of his game has been just really encouraging and I think just continuously undersold. So now let's talk about Caleb Houston as you are wearing your Michigan sweater. And we both still believe in him. After your piece on his passing, he got really, really hot for a little bit in December and since then has gone ice cold, which is unfortunate. But I think the flip side of that is... I have been talking all season about how I thought that Jaden Ivey's low shooting percentage from last year was not an indicator of the kind of shooter that he is. And I don't think Jaden Ivey is anywhere near the kind of shooter that Caleb Houston is, but he just keeps getting cold. And it's frustrating to watch just because, especially when he did have that hot stretch in December, he looked like the kind of exceptional shooting prospect that we all thought he was coming into the year. And It's not like the jump shot looks any worse. It's just that it's not going down. And I think part of the reason that I'm still as high on him as I am is that I rage against low sample size of three-point shooting in college and have continuously basically since I've talked about the draft. But 
you know, the other thing with Houston is, as you brought up in your excellent article about Caleb Houston's passing, he still provides value to an offense, even if that shot isn't going down at the rate you expect it to. But, you know, the flip side of that is if Caleb Houston is cold right about now and then all of a sudden heats up in March, his draft stock is probably going to be exactly where we expected it to be at the start of the season. It, it, it's so tough with Houston because I, I want to keep him in the lottery, but just every time I watch him, I, I end up just like bumping him down like one spot because of just how underwhelming the performance has been. Um, I think every game he shows that he really understands the game and that he has a really high feel for the game of, and I, I think that really shines with his passing and his ball movement as I outlined, and then his off ball movement and how he runs in transition and fills lanes and cuts and runs off screens all of that shows that I think he's a really smart and intelligent basketball player, which is really encouraging. And I think something that tran- translates pretty easily to the next level. I still think the shooting will come around. I think he, the for- like you said, the form looks good. It's just not going in. And for all the free throw percentage truthers out there, I believe he's still shooting about 80% from the line, uh, which is encouraging. It's, the shot just needs to go in and it it continues not to and if that continues if that trend continues then his ability to really produce and punish defenses is drastically minimized because he doesn't have the athleticism to create on his own or put pressure on the rim on his own the way he does that is by you know attacking closeouts and forcing defenses to stay tight on him on the perimeter and then you know, using really well-timed cuts or running off screens tightly to get there and then create for others. So if, if the shot isn't falling, if what we saw in high school, which would be weird is a complete mirage, then his offensive impact is going to be pretty minimal. So as an admitted partial free throw truther, I definitely still am willing to believe in his shot more because his free throws continue to go down. But I mean, you mentioned his off-ball work and his cutting, and Mm -hmm. the spaces that he'll get for that are going to be a lot smaller if he isn't someone who proves himself as an elite shooter. You know, those opportunities are a lot easier to get if teams are face-guarding you at the three-point line. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, I I think that that lack of athleticism and ability to kind of create for himself on offense also stems over to the defense, which has just been all over the place this season, which... I, I I didn't really expect. I was really impressed with him as a team defender in high school and AAU. Um, but his he gets beat on back cuts a lot more often than I thought. I worried about how his lack of athleticism translates to him being a non-ball defender against NBA wings. So I, it, it may be one of those crazy scenarios where one of these top recruits ends up coming back for a sophomore season and having a huge sophomore year. I still expect him to go out. I would still take him in the first round. And, you know, it sucks to say that this COVID pause that they're on may do them good, but maybe just stepping away and clearing his head may just do him good. And hopefully he, they, as a team, they come back healthy and he can start knocking down shots for the first time, pretty much all season. So before we wrap things up here, I wanted to go over a few international prospects who we both agree on to varying degrees, not exactly in the same place, but starting off with Hugo Besson for the New Zealand Breakers this year, 
And certainly in terms of statistical production, I think he's been the most impressive international player. He's someone who is, I think, more of a two-guard slash combo guard type, but can do stuff with the ball in his hands. He's been a great shooter, both standstill and off movement. And I don't have him at as the top-rated international prospect in this draft, but certainly the guy I have ahead of him has been a lot less consistent. Yeah, I, I think Besson has been pretty impressive um I, I think he's a really good ball handler i trust the shooting uh the percentages aren't outlandish but i i think when you watch him play and his mechanics i think it's all really encouraging for that kind of combo guard six man role that he'll likely play um i'm a little underwhelmed by the athleticism and i worry about the defense but you know l- looking at production among European prospects he's right at the top of the list and when you compare him to his teammate um Usman Dieng he's been way more impressive than Dieng um which I I, I certainly didn't expect entering the season I don't think anyone expected that entering. <laughs> I mean Dieng was supposed to be the best international prospect in this class and I had him behind someone else heading into the season and I definitely do now multiple people have jumped ahead of Dang on my list, who has been not as disappointing as Yannick Sosa, but not not great for Jang so far. But moving on to Nikolajovic, I cannot believe that I have not spent more time talking about Nikolajovic on this podcast. And although our colleague Tyler Rucker wrote an excellent article on Jovic, I also cannot believe that I was not the first person to write on Jovic this year. Some of our colleagues disagree with us on this, but we both have Jovic in the 10 to 20 range. I had him as a lottery pick. You didn't, but I think really the story there with Jovic is that some people were concerned about his shot heading into this season. His shot has really been, I think, the part that's been the most positive about his year so far. He's been a bit inconsistent, but he did have a 25-point game against KK Split. His Passing is elite, elite for someone at his size at 6'10". And I don't know, the inconsistency has been a bit troubling, but when he has gotten to play, he's had some really impressive statistical performances and the tape has been more impressive even than the statistics, especially when you look at his ability to handle and pass at his size. Yeah, I admittedly, I haven't seen a ton of Jovic, but the flashes are super intriguing when you look at you know his skill, his feel for the game. And then at that size, it's just a rare combination of the three. So if the shooting continues to prove itself, I think that makes up for a lot of you know the, the underwhelming athleticism. Um, but like you said, the passing, the ball skills, it's all really impressive, especially at his size. So if that continues to grow and translate, it wouldn't stun me if a couple months from now he's talked about more regularly as a lottery prospect. Whereas last year, um, before he was draft eligible, I remember a lot of people saying that they would that they were projecting him as a top 10 pick for this year. So the, the views and the outlooks were there for him. Um, I think one once or if he kind of starts producing at a more consistent or higher level, I I think those talks will pick up pretty quickly again. And finally, let's talk about Roko Prakacin. We had him still in the first round. Some of the other no ceilings people did not, but I think we were both stunned last year when he pulled out of the draft because we both were pretty sure that he would go somewhere in the first round. 
And I don't think he's done anything this season to convince me that he still shouldn't go in the first round if he declares this year, which I would be even more shocked if he didn't declare after this season than last season. Yeah, and my my only guess as to why people are starting to sour on him is because there hasn't been a whole lot of growth in his game, I guess. Um, but like, I'm just looking at the raw numbers, it's pretty consistent to where he was last year. There's been a little bit of a drop off, but nothing major or drastic that's you know super alarming. So it's just weird that a pro- an international prospect that so many in the draft community had as a top 10 or at least lottery pick last year, that was a much better and deeper draft than this draft, um, at least in my opinion, are now completely writing him off is not even a first rounder. So I, I, I don't think that's fair. That doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I still think there's enough there um, to be intrigued by in the back end of the first and or at least post lottery. Um, so I, I, I think the skills are there for a, a really talented kind of international forward. Um, so kind of similar to Jovic, where I, I, I expect that once we kind of continue to get more games from them and more tape, that the talk and the intrigue starts to pick up again. All right. Anything else before we wrap up? Anything to plug? Anything like that? Uh, just everything. No ceilings, no ceilings, Substack. no ceilings, Twitter, no ceilings, YouTube, no ceilings podcast. Uh, go subscribe to it all. Uh, we're doing awesome stuff. Um, also, I ho- will hopefully have a in-depth Jared Vanderbilt piece out on Canis Hoopus mm-hmm. in the next couple of days um, if life allows me to get to it. So that th- that is the plan. So keep an eye out for that. Nice. I will definitely keep an eye out for that. Jared Vanderbilt is so much fun. <laughs> just so much fun. Just a pure joy. Pure joy. All right. Well, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at T-M-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1. You can find his work, as he mentioned, of course, on No Ceilings, as well as Canisupis, as he mentioned, and hashtag basketball. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And I will be doing a Travion Williams article for Thursday for No Ceilings, which I am really looking forward to. I've been rewatching some of his passing highlights and it's just the most fun. But anyway, I will have that Travion Williams piece up on Thursday and I will also have an article for Nets Republic out on Friday. So be sure to check that out. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.